Ask the Panel will be back next week, but for the end of this week's show, we're looking at just one question. What can we do to eradicate racism from football? On Saturday evening, a City fan was caught on camera making alleged racist gestures towards United midfielder Fred. On Sunday, a man was arrested in connection with the incident, and for legal reasons, we aren't able to discuss that case specifically on this week's show. Earlier this season, Bernardo Silva served a one-match ban and was then both fined and sent on an educational course over a tweet he sent regarding Benjamin Mendy. It contained a joke based on racial stereotypes. Last season, Raheem Sterling was the victim of racist abuse at Stamford Bridge. It might seem like I'm digging City out here on the topic, but I'm not. Most, if not all of you listening to this, are City fans. I'm a City fan as well. These incidents are all relevant to us, and huge topics like this often have more of an impact when they're closer to home. We always talk about the situation overseas when England travel to other countries, when English teams travel in the Champions League as well, but the truth is we need to look closer to home. So, for the final part of this week's show, we're going to dedicate it to discuss what will probably make a lot of us feel quite uncomfortable. I'm now joined by Tajin Hutton from the Kick It Out campaign. Hi, Tajin. How are you doing? You okay? I'm not too bad, thanks. Uh, ben Carrington is a sociologist who has uh, researched racism in football. Hi, Ben. Hi there. And Nedim Manua is a former City defender. Hi, Nedim. Hello. Hello. So uh, just to begin with, I'd like to like to start with you, uh, Tajan. Um, just uh, what what's currently done in, in the UK to stop racism inside, uh, inside football grounds? Um... There's a few initiatives in this, depending on the institutions or the organisations that you're speaking to. As it stands, there isn't more or less like a unified or a, a, a uniformed approach collectively. Um, it's more or less people doing their individual things based on what they feel they need to do, based on the feedback that they got from the public. Um, so as it stands, it all depends on, on the, 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 the organisations that you're speaking to from our standpoint. It's just making sure... Um, that the, the topic of equality and the topic of discrimination is continue to be had in the boardrooms and in, amongst the lips of people of influence. Now, Nedum, like, in the introduction there, I listed a, a, a few things that have happened recently. When, when you're on the pitch, how aware are you of things like this? Uh, I think you, you can become quite aware of it. I think most of the time when you're on the field, you're just involved in the game and you, know, you hear songs from thousands of people and so on and so forth, some appropriate, some inappropriate, but it's just every so often when there's like a bit more of a lull in the game can you really start to see and hear what's actually being said? And for as much as this person said was gesturing at Fred, like there's a whole different topic just about abuse, abuse in general. Because when you go out on that field, some of the things that, you've heard, that I've heard across my career have been absolutely, you know, scandalous. And to think that normal people are saying these things, which they would never say, like or do out on the streets, is uh, I think that's a big problem. It's an interesting kind of question, Ben. I want to I want to ask you that that sort of question. I mean, why why do people do that? Why do people turn to, to racism when, like Nedum says, they probably wouldn't, you know, in everyday life? Um, well, I'm not sure that's true. I, I think one of the things that we might have to be honest about is that maybe there is more racism within everyday life than we're prepared to admit. Now, maybe in public, people are less likely to do and say things. But I, I, I find it highly unlikely that some of the incidents that you refer to in, in, in the introduction um, were done by people who in their private life never say a racist word, never use race, racist epithets, don't use racist gestures, don't engage in racist banter. And then suddenly they get to the football ground and they transform into people who are comfortable with, with using racist language. So another way to look at it is maybe maybe we've deluded ourselves, maybe we've kidded ourselves that racism kind of disappeared from British society. Maybe we should be more honest and say there's a political climate right now in which immigrants are vilified, in which 
you know, as we saw with the Windrush scandal, you know, the black Caribbean populations who have been in Britain for decades who consider themselves to be British suddenly realized they weren't as British as they believed or they were believed uh, that they were. So one option or one way to think about it actually is that, that racism hasn't really disappeared from British society. It kind of changed, it kind of hides a bit and, the, and football provides a space where people feel comfortable enough to express their feelings that in other domains they have to keep semi-private. Could I just jump in for a second? Yeah, of course. If that's all right. So I just need to clarify that point because uh, I agree with what he was just saying because for me, one of my biggest issues whenever I talk about race and things like this and racism and so on is the fact that it, we talk about it the most when we talk about sport, but it is a bigger issue than that. When race falls on the back pages, the, page, that, the back pages change every single day. This is a front page issue, but it doesn't get discussed as such. So we talk about, oh, maybe we should ban them from stadiums, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do whatever. But th that will just teach people in some ways to just be quiet when they go to a stadium. But it doesn't mean that the way that they view other people has actually changed, because overall it hasn't. And I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a pessimist as such, but I'm more realist. And I know that for minorities, no matter what they are, if you, if you are a black person in the UK, the percentage that you represent even though you can live in an area that appears very diverse, it's still very, very low. So people's views aren't going to change, you, change of you until they're affected by something. And some people do buy into it and they feel your pain and they feel your story, but you still make up just such a small minority of what is essentially, you know, like a, a, white, a, white, British, a white British country, essentially, you know what I mean? And for me to say I'm offended, actually enough to say it, or so much enough to say it a thousand times, to get to maybe make a few people change their mind and the fact is we've been saying it and nothing's really changing and the fact is it's because most people don't really care so i feel like as a as a black person now in the uk it's all about how once you get the platform a way that you can speak that will get more people to get involved because change will come not necessarily through us solely protesting it will come from people within the majority majority protesting for us as well and that's the thing which has been really really slow across the years in my opinion well, I was going to say on, on that kind of front, uh, to Jean, how how can we kind of help the, the, the situation inside grounds? Because we, we all, there must be, the, the, we can't go a, a, a season where, where somebody doesn't hear something or, or sees something that, that they feel uncomfortable with. So as, as, as somebody who, who isn't the target of racist abuse, what could I do, for instance? I think it's, it's, it's making a stance, not even as a, as a fan of football or somebody involved in the football industry, it's just making a stance as a person. I think far too often we separate this idea that football within, or racism within stadiums and racism in, in general day-to-day -day, um, day -day life are two separate things. And I feel like if you're not making a stance within your friends or your family or your office environment, um, in essence... Um, making a stance within a football stadium is not going to have any effects because it's not a footballing issue. Yes, um, football can take the lead in a lot of um, ways and aspects into, into tackling it or, or making a stance. However, football isn't the answer. The answer is in what we do in today today. Unfortunately, Britain is still in a state where we haven't accepted the fact that we have a race issue within this country. And until we get to that stage of acceptance and accountability and making change based upon that, the state of football stadiums is always going to be the same because as, as both gentlemen alluded to, it's not, it's not a footballing issue. We can equip um, stewards and we can equip all the people that facilitate football within stadiums or within grassroots football all we want, but that doesn't eradicate the problem. What it does is it creates a controlled environment. Creating a controlled environment is, doesn't go to the heart or the root of the problem. And I feel like until we tackle it as an actual problem within British culture and society, it's always going to be the same within stadiums.
Ben, how true is it that that fans or or fans of a particular team might be able to to, to look at it and go, you know, you know what? I know I shouldn't be doing this, but if it gives our team that little bit of an advantage and, and puts somebody off their game, is that is that ever a draw to anybody to to, to go beyond the realms of what is acceptable and what's not acceptable? Yeah, I think that's true, and, and part of it is. So what, I think one of the problems that we have is that you know the, the football crowd, the, the football fandom, is a really rich environment. Yeah, I mean it's a great culture. It's funny. It's organic. It's biting. You know, it emerges from the kind of working class banter that many of us grow up with and that we love. The problem is it can very easily slip from that kind of jovial banter into something much darker, much nastier. And I think we have to say that we need to kind of be honest and hold ourselves accountable. And I think one of the big problems for me is that we're just not being honest in this debate. So as I've said in in other contexts, like racism always plays away. Racism never plays at home. So when Luis Suarez racially abuses Patricia Evra, the Liverpool fans, do they come out and say Liverpool have a proud tradition of anti-racism and even though Luis Suarez is, is one of our players, we condemn Suarez unequivocally? No. What happens is is that the fans and the players, shamefully, the players come out with, with uh, we support Suarez shirts after he's been found guilty. So the Liverpool fans say, well, we, we're against racism, but not when it includes our, one of our players. And then the Chelsea fans, when John Terry was found to racially abused Anton Ferdinand. Do they come out and say, well, John Terry was our captain, but nonetheless, we were against racism? No, they come out and defend him. And let's be very honest, so did Man City fans over Bernardo Silva. Time and time again, whenever it's, whenever the racism is about or involves one of the players at uh, their club, there's this kind of automatic defense that we, well, we need to protect our own. And I think we have to be honest and say, no, racism doesn't just play away, it plays at home. And we can't just stop singling out the racist individual football fans, although we should, of course, you know, sanction them, but to say it's part of a wider culture in which these forms of anti-black racism and often Islamophobia, if you look at the, you know, the abuse that Mo Salah has been getting, like th- this simply has to stop and it has to stop by, and I agree with what was just said a moment ago, by those fans who themselves may not be engaging in racist abuse, but they know their mate does. And they either laugh along or they don't say anything in the pubs, in the taxi, when you're at home watching TV. That normalization of racism in private then bleeds out into the public space. And it means that white people have to stand up and call out their mates and their friends, even if that's going to be an awkward conversation. Because if you don't, it means that when you have these kind of public forums and somebody feels a bit more confident, then black players are going to be racially abused in their places of work. And that's completely unacceptable. Nedham, you, you've spoken to us in the past about about your growing up and, and your experiences growing up uh, in, in, in Manchester. What Has anything changed since you were younger? Um, from, where, from where I was raised, I think things have changed quite a lot, yes. But it's... it's yeah, it's better, but you know, I'd almost expect it to be better because some of the things that were going on in the early nineties when I was in, when I was close to that stadium were as wild as they come. So yeah, it, it is better. I don't think it's perfect. I don't think it's anywhere near great or anything. I thought, but the points that have all been made here are so valid because it is a case of you know if someone's saying something that they shouldn't be saying, like don't just sit there and say nothing if you know that it's wrong. Because I think overall, a lot of people they're happy to say what they say. And usually when someone says something that is racist or is 
discriminatory in any particular way. Most of them don't believe that it is, even though someone is telling them that it is. So the more times we can almost educate people to understand what they what is right and what is wrong, you know, maybe their views will change. Maybe the way they'll start acting around other people will change, and they can be more of an empathetic people instead of just you know saying and doing whatever they want because there's no there's no accountability. If you surround yourself with people just like you and talk about others in a negative way and everyone just buys into it, then you know it feels like it's fine. Have you ever been in a situation where one of the opposition players is being racially abused and you're thinking, well, actually, you know, that's that, that, that's also me? Yeah, do you know what? So that or that at the weekend. That affected me in two ways. You could argue three, because essentially, like I am, I am, a, I am a black male. I'm a black football player, and I'm a black Manchester City supporter. And to see this is very terrible. So to see that, like I, people like Raheem Stone, who's trying to make a big difference when it comes to um, things like this, he has to be on the field now and watch the people who love him, who he sticks up for, behave in a way which not only affects the club but affects him as well. You know, that that is so in... So I'm lucky I've not been on the field, to be honest. I've been on the field where people have abused me, but I've never been on the field where someone's abused the opposition. But to see that is so, it's so, it's so embarrassing. Like, this is, this is your own, and you know that this person's wrong because it's affecting you. Like, to think that someone can allegedly make these gestures about someone who's black in the opposition, when you have black players in your own team as well, it's just... And they say that they're doing it to support their team. Like, I just don't, it doesn't, logically, it doesn't make sense. But then, unfortunately, I think that's the way that a lot of this stuff goes. And logic just, just appears to go out the window. So, John, we've we've talked about um, sanctioning uh, people who are caught making uh, racist gestures, uh, involving themselves in racial abuse. Uh, what what can be done? Because it, it feels like at the moment that that, for instance, life bans for supporters don't seem to be too much of a deterrent. A few match bans for for players don't seem to be don't seem to be doing the job of, of a deterrent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's frustrating from my standpoint because um, from a, from my standpoint, I I manage the grassroots sector at, at Kick It Out. And if you, if you have, say, for instance, a gentleman by the name of Kevin who's found guilty at a Manchester City game of racially abusing somebody else, you can give him a, a lifetime ban from the stadium. However, that doesn't stop Kevin as a parent from going to a game on a, on a local park on a Sunday and racially abusing another kid because the ideology is still there. Banning somebody from the environment doesn't change the ideology. And that's the issue that we have at the moment is we feel that banning somebody is, is, is eradicating the problem. It may eradicate the person from the environment. However, that doesn't take that person out of society. It has to, we have to get to a point where, we, where we're consciously challenging mindsets now. Um, and that's not limited to football. That's everywhere. And until we start challenging mindsets, finding out why they think the way they feel, why, why they think the way they think, why they speak the way they speak, and why they act the way they act, and challenging that based on our own morals, it's always going to taking people out of the equation only eradicates or, or opens up an empty seat that can easily be filled by somebody else with the same ideology, the same racist mentality. It has to be a challenging of mindsets now. But in order to challenge mindsets, you have to have the right people in position in order to challenge those mindsets, which is for a reason for me why the issue of racism is beyond the stadiums and beyond the fancies. It starts with the boardrooms, the people of authority within the football industry. Those who should have people in place to challenge people of discriminative mindsets. And unfortunately, none of that is in place. Ben, do we need to see more diverse, kind of at the upper, more diversity at the upper echelons of clubs? So, like, uh, like Sir John says, in the boardroom. Yeah, I think because one of the problems is we we 
we talk about how multiracial and how multicultural football is, but what we really mean is there's a high proportion of black players on the pitch. There's not, there's very few South Asian professional players who are actually, you know, a, a percentage-wise, a bigger group in Britain than, than than the black British population. And you're right, we have a we have a continuing forms of systemic institutional racism that views black people as being good enough to be players now, but not good enough to be coaches and managers. If you go into the upper echelons of UEFA, of the FA, of the English Premier League, it's overwhelming. No, to quote Greg Dyke for many years ago when he was director general of the BBC, you know, the outside of the football pitch, football is hideously white, you know, it, the, the, and and just to go back quickly to the question you raised before. So you're right, are things, people often say, are things better than they were before in the 70s and 80s. Yes, they are. We've had progress. But let's be honest, that's such a low bar. If, if the bar is, do we now have, do we do we any longer have 10 to 15 to 20,000 people singing in unison racist chants and using the N-word? No, we don't have that. But that, that shouldn't be the bar for progress, surely. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. But that's, if that's our starting point, that things are better now because 10,000 people don't racially abuse black players, then yes, things are better. But it should be, well, now we only have a couple of hundred. Or we only have like 10 or a few every single game. So I think it's not so much even that we have a, a racism problem. We have a denial of racism problem. And that's the biggest issue right now that people even when we do have these incidences of racism there's always a denial well it wasn't men or that wasn't really a, a that wasn't really like a, a monkey gesture someone was pretending to be a caveman you know it looks like i was making a racist gesture but really i just had my hands in my pocket etc time and time again and then when we do have these incidents the upper echelons of football fail to act and they fail to act adequately and uh, as long as that is the case we're not going to have that deep-seated discussion, both within football and beyond football, which is why do so many white fans and people think it necessary to have their identity predicated upon viewing black people as being less than they are? I mean, that, that's that's the bottom of it. That's the that's the root cause of racism. This this sense of white identity that needs anti-black racism to show itself up. And until that shifts and changes, then I think, sadly, we are going to continue to see these incidences. And then those in power are going to take the necessary steps to begin to change it. And, I, and then, you know, the Premier League had this big campaign this season, yes, which enough, enough is enough. No room for racism. Well, I think we really need to, at, at this stage, we start, we need to go way beyond the kind of, players being getting you know, a one match ban or two or three match bans and a 50,000 pound fine to say, if you're found guilty of racism as a player, as a manager, the, the, the first offense you're given a season's ban and then a lifetime ban. Because that's what they did in America. You, you may remember in the NBA, Donald Sterling was the former owner of the LA Clippers, one of the big teams out here in Los Angeles. And he was found guilty of, or tapes emerge of him racially abusing NBA players. Within four days, Donald Sterling was given a lifetime ban from the NBA. This is an owner, and he was stripped of ownership. He was forced to sell the Clippers. Now, that's sanctions. Now, imagine that in the UK, where an owner is given a lifetime ban from football. Because it's easy to give the fans bans, yes? I mean, this is what's happening now. We're taking strong action against the fans. 
what about the players and what about the managers and the coaches as we've seen in Italy and in Spain and elsewhere engaging this type of racist language? So much, much stronger sanctions, a bigger discussion, a more honest discussion about whiteness and white identity and the fact that even today, if you're black British, you still seem to be sub, you know, suspect to some degree. That, that just has to stop. Nedham, would you, would you maybe support things like a points deduction for clubs? Um, not really. No, I, I suppose it's a measure, but I don't, I don't really see how that changes the issue. To be honest, like as the as the guys have been saying, you know, it's, it's bigger than football itself. Like you can be deducted points, but people still think the way that they think. I think um, as we were talking about before, in terms of the changes from the seventies, eighties, and so on and so forth, it feels like we're in a place now where legally you can't, you can't do certain things. But culturally, nothing else has really changed, if you know what I mean. And it's the change in culture which will essentially bring the change in behaviour. So talking about deducting points and this, that and the other, like, it's related to, say, someone being banned from the stadium, which is a sanction in itself. If somebody loves their team more so than love any player, and then you take away their ability to go to the stadium, in some ways it might make the issue worse within that person. So overall, nothing's been changed apart from the fact that in that particular environment where someone will appear, 19 games in a season you might not see this one particular person but the problem is now bigger because now there's someone that's enraged because they've, take, they've taken away something which means more to them than anything else you, you get what I mean so the two point sanction and so on is or the point sanction I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that because it just feels like it's you stepping out and choosing to show that you're doing something as opposed to doing something of value and sorry to also go back to this I think someone mentioned the enough campaign or something do you remember that? just got said a moment ago. Well, I don't know if anyone on the show was involved in this, but I think it came from the PFA. And I have certain issues with the PFA, to be honest with you, because with this campaign, as a player, the day before it was due to happen, to send you a message, say, do this, post this, we're making a stand. And I then started to ask some questions as to, oh, who was involved in the creation of it? What was this? What was that? And... From the person I spoke to, no player was really involved in doing it. It was the PFA showing that they were behind the players after a series of incidents. But the campaign itself doesn't involve, not involving the people who are facing the abuse and so on. Then what type of idea is it? Like, it's great. Okay, we'll do it. We'll just do this to show that we're all together. But everyone has to do it. And you've got no reason. You've like literally got a message the day before. Just pop this on. Everyone change the logo. Everyone say this. Everyone say that. But that's not that's not unity. That's just being people told what to do, being told what to do. And all those people who maybe did have a big platform to try and find change, maybe they would have used their platform better and would have made more of a difference if they were involved in the creation of the scheme together. Because you know all players will come together, but it's different when they get told what to do. And that campaign itself, I found it more. I, I personally find it more embarrassing than uplifted, whereas other people would put it on. But it's just a, just a typical thing when it comes to discrimination where, you know, we're going to do something, we're going to all just do it together and it'll look nice. But then give it a week and it's all gone and nobody cares anymore because that's the nature of the campaign. It, at its soul, it didn't have true meaning. Like, I think yeah, I spoke to Danny Rose at the time. He was a, They were trying to involve him and give him a quote towards, um, uh, towards support back in the campaign. And he said, okay, that's all fine, but can you also put in something about also bringing in black managers and coaches and blah, blah, blah. And the campaign said, yeah, we'll do that. And then when the quote came out, that wasn't even involved in the quote itself. So as you can see, 
so you can see certain people are trying to show that they're doing something, but when it comes down to the real importance of it and what really needs to be said and really needs to be done, it's not being done, but it still feels like you're doing something. So they're happy with that. So as I say, it was a, for me, it was a nonsense campaign. One final question then to uh, to everybody. I'll start with you, uh, to John. Uh, what what can we do? What um what 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 message should people should listeners take from this this discussion to be to be able to move forward now? Um, if there's one message I can say, or I have to try and give to everybody listening, is um if you if you witness any type of of racist abuse coming from anybody, whether it be your nearest and dearest, it could be your colleagues outside of the football environment on public transport, in an Uber, in a shop, wherever it is say something about it because at that point what you're doing is you're challenging culture and in, in the day-to-day environment this isn't i can reiterate again this isn't a football problem yes football has the ability to lead in various situations however it's not a football problem it's not limited or directed to football it's a societal problem and if you're allowing your work colleagues and your family and your friends to to act a particular way that you know they shouldn't be acting you have to speak up because this is a collective thing us as black people who are the minorities, we can't take on the entire country by ourselves, and it's a collective effort. Um, and if that means that you're being you're you're being being made to be the outcast amongst your circle of friends or family, then that's where it's got to be. But we need more courageous people in this country to start speaking up now. And that's as I said, it's not limited to football. That's in day to day day to day work. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I, I I'd modify that slightly. So I'd say it's not only a football problem. Because the danger is if we say it's not a football problem sometimes, and I know that wasn't the intent intention, but sometimes that allows those in football to say, hey, look, this is, quote, a societal problem. Well, football is part of society. Like, football doesn't take place on some other planet outside of society. So, it's, it, but you're right. So it's not only a football problem, but it is a problem for football. And it's a problem for wider society. And I think, as I said earlier, um, an easy way to stop this is for white people to stop being racist. <laughs> That's a very easy way to, to deal with a problem. And that means we do need some accountability of white people thinking, you know what, the next time I'm, I'm in the pub or I'm in the taxi or I'm hanging out with my mates and some of that banter becomes a bit racist, I'm going to have to step up and say, actually, that's not that funny. And just because our black friends left the space doesn't mean that we can revert back to this kind of normalized race, racial language in a very similar way as a man. I would argue that many men are aware that when we're amongst ourselves, sexist banter takes place. And if we're straight guys, homophobic banter takes place. And often it takes a bit of courage for us to step up and say, hey, guys, you know what? That's, I don't think that's that funny. And the danger will be in that moment, you'll feel ostracized, you'll feel a bit um, vulnerable. But basically, this is what needs to happen on a day-to-day basis. We need to stop excusing racism. We need to stop denying that racism exists. And if we can get to that stage, you know, and, and football can be the beautiful game. I am optimistic. You know, it seems, seems like this conversation may have been a bit too pessimistic. I think it's just realistic. I'm optimistic that the beautiful game can genuinely be beautiful. But that can only happen if we're willing to acknowledge the, the, the kind of the aspects of the game which are less beautiful, which are a bit ugly. And that means addressing racism within the game, but also, and I agree with the comments being made earlier, addressing racism in our everyday lives and within our political systems. Like the wider political discourse right now in Britain is one that sounds eerily similar to the types of discussions in the 1960s and 1970s. The particular groups may have changed, but this notion of kind of British supremacy around the world and 
kind of putting the great back into Great Britain, this kind of hyper-nationalist discourse at this particular moment in, in British history is allowing for the kind of the worst aspects of British society to reveal itself. And it means collectively as fans, as, as mums and sisters and brothers and dads, we're going to have to begin to change our attitudes on a daily basis. And if we can do that, then hopefully we may begin to see a shift um, in, in the types of racist abuse that we've been seeing, sadly, too often um, in too many places. I think we need to be more honest about the situation. I think we need people that sit within the majority to listen to the minority, no matter what, whether that's females in the workplace, whether that's people from different countries or whatever, and really listen to what they're saying and maybe gain an understanding of why something is right or why something is wrong. And not just say, well, I don't care because I'm in the majority. You need to listen to these people. And you shouldn't, for all the stuff that, say, some of the minorities have been through across the last few decades, hundreds of years, we shouldn't be in a position now whereby some of those problems still exist because some of the stuff that happened then, which they had to go through, was completely unacceptable. So to even have a slight thought in your mind that, well, no, that this is fine today or whatever, like, that's completely wrong. As I just say, it requires the courage of people within that majority, even whether they agree or disagree, to understand that this is wrong. And as a consequence, they can't perpetuate what is wrong because the moment they do, it's very, it can spread so much quickly within that comfortable space. And change will come, I believe, from when people become more empathetic. So listen to people who are being discriminated against or being spoken about in a, in a wrong way. And then you individually try and make change. And the more people that do that, the better it will be. It'll be you'll hear fewer things at stadiums, you hear fewer things out in the streets. You won't have the coach where racist, homophobic, sexist, whatever jokes are being passed around, like fly around the internet and so on. You know, we'll be drifting towards a better place where if someone does send that, instead of somebody forwarding it on, you say, well, no, this is wrong. I'm going to delete this. And in that moment, that's progress. Even if it seems like you're the odd one out, progress for the masses will always be better than just, you know, just always trying to keep people down. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time on uh, this week's Blue Moon podcast, but uh, special thanks to my guests for the end of this week's show too, uh, to Gene Hutton from Kick It Out. Thank you very much. No pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, sociologist Ben Carrington, thank you. Thanks for the discussion. And former City defender Nedim Anu. Nedim, thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. Take care.